0: Today we've been talking about Jeb Stewart's controversial ride to Gettysburg with J. David Petruzzi, co-author of Plenty of Blame to Go Around. When we return, more Stewart and a little bit of Buford's Boys as well on Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Hi, Tom Baudet from Motel 6 with a word for business travelers. Seems business has its own language these days, full of buzzwords, like buzzword or net-net. And after a day spent whiteboarding a matrix of action items and deliverables, it's nice to know you can always outsource your accommodation needs to the nearest Motel 6. You'll get a clean, comfortable room for the lowest price, net-net, of any national chain plus data ports and free local calls in case you tabled your discussion and need to reconvene offline. So you can think of Motel 6 as your total business travel solution provider vis-a-vis cost-effective lodging alternatives for Q1 through Q4. I think. Just call 1-800-4MOTEL-6 or visit motel6.com. I'm Tom Bodette for Motel 6, and we'll maintain the lighting device in its current state of illumination for you. Motel 6 and a core hotel.
2: You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the
0: world comes to talk. Civil War talk radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with JD. Petruzzi, co-author of Plenty of Blame to go around Jeb Stewart's controversial ride to Gettysburg. In our first two segments, we talked about that ride itself and you will not find a more interesting description, uh, detailed but uh, fascinating of how uh, Stuart's cavalry marched through Virginia and Maryland and Pennsylvania in their odyssey-like quest to link up with the rest of the Confederate Army. Uh, It's a book that I highly recommend to our listeners. We talked about the campaign uh, itself and alluded several times to the controversy that followed, and that's we'll discuss that in a moment. I want to pick up, uh, J.D., with the moment uh, after Stuart finally arrives at Gettysburg and meets with Robert E. Lee. Um, what, uh, what happens then?
2: Well, um, when he finally does arrive and reports there late on the afternoon of July 2nd, there are some different conflicting accounts from uh, some you know, eyewitnesses. Um, you will get the idea that Lee was very agitated, um, almost to the point of where it looked as though he was going to strike Stewart. And then from other, you know, supposed eyewitnesses, you'll get the idea that things were a little more toned down and that perhaps Lee, you know, was, he was really feeling a sense of relief that his cavalrymen had arrived, um, which all leads to, you know, the observations. Then later, uh, Marshall, among them, you know, makes the point that perhaps Lee really thought of his cavalry not so much as all those troopers on horseback but the uh, Stuart himself was really the embodiment of his cavalry and that's who he missed so you can take from the different descriptions you know that we have really a whole wide range of emotions of you know what uh what steward may have really felt and of course even when we have the recording of uh, you know what lee was supposed to have said you know you were here at last how much exasperation really was in the voice you know we can't tell so much just from the wording and what, can,
0: what did you think of Martin Sheen's playing of that scene in the, the movie Gettysburg?
2: Yeah, um, it, makes, you know, it, it makes for good screenplay, uh, but I think it was a little bit overdone, just myself personally. Um, I, you know, when I think of what the scene may have been like, knowing what Lee and the Confederate Army have basically been through all of July 2nd, um, and, you know, what was just really starting to gear up on, I'm sorry, all of July 1st and what was starting to gear up on July 2nd, I, I think there definitely was some frustration there. Many of his staff officers, um, at least staff officers, record that for those days before that, he had asked constantly, you know, where Stewart was. So I'm sure that the exasperation had built up, but there was probably that great sense of relief that he had finally arrived. How much it was anger, you know, is hard to tell uh... is really really speculation there's a lot of anger in that scene in the movie um, and as, as i said i think it makes for a good screenplay but uh... as far as accuracy that's that's michael sharr's interpretation um, I, I don't think i ascribe so much you know so much of that anger to lee it,
0: it doesn't it, it seems to me he, he wouldn't need to be angry if you based on some of the descriptions you quote uh, one of the witnesses said that the, that the whole scene was inexpressibly painful Right. Um, I personally recall days in graduate school when I was working uh, uh, with the great David Herbert Donald, uh, who was my graduate advisor, who, in age relation to me at the time, was, was uh, somewhat comparable to uh, Lee and Stewart. Uh, I suppose both Lee and Stewart were younger. All those guys in the Civil War were so darn young compared mm-hmm. to uh, what we think of. But uh, the older man and the younger one. And I once misunderstood a research assignment to do for Professor Donald and gave him some material it was not what he wanted and in his patrician Mississippi born voice just expressed well wow, this is not quite what I had in mind uh, and it was like being taken to the woodshed it was it was all he needed to say to let me, him let me know that I'd let him down And a display of anger and histrionics would have been no more effective or less effective than just that quiet disappointment. And and when I read, well, General Stewart, I see you are here at last, I can picture how cutting to the core that must have been for for Stewart, uh, that this man that he he admired and wanted to serve had been let down. Uh, And
2: really who had done nothing more in his career than... All he could to please Lee. Um, Lee really loves Stuart, you know, and he writes. Um, there's some wonderful, you know, phraseology in Lee's letters where he, he writes to his wife, you know, that uh, he thinks of Stuart as a son. And I'm sure Stuart, you know, felt uh, that Lee was like a father to him. And a- as you say, as, as a parent, you can appreciate the fact that it, it only takes a look or a stare to get the point across.
0: And exactly. Right. And I
2: think as a parent, you learn that.
0: Uh, well, I practice that stare. Uh, yeah, so do I. <laughs> in the mirror, <laughs> you, you got to make it count because they're not paying attention too long. And, and I think
2: it does. You know, luckily we do have those words recorded, and if Lee did indeed, you know, say them, um, they could have been accompanied by whatever you know Lee did in those situations to get his point across. And I don't think we really have to put the voice inflection in it.
0: No, really I, th- I think, I think you're, you're right on that.
2: Yeah, I think it comes across.
0: Now the. Controversy, as you and Eric point out in the book, begins immediately. And I just sort of drew up a a set of columns here. And I've got on one side Marshall, that we've already mentioned, Lee's secretary, uh, Taylor, another staff officer, uh, Harry Heath, uh, Jubal Early, Longstreet, uh, Thomas Rosser, Moxley Sorrell. Then on the other side of the column, I've got uh, Fitz Lee. Staff officers Blackford, McClellan, uh, Garnett, and John Mosby, mm-hmm. and these are the two. It, it's like like picking teams uh, for basketball here, uh, pro or anti, and pro Stewart, respectively. Uh, immediately after the war, everybody who was within uh, uh, shouting distance of Gettysburg has an opinion about Stewart.
2: Very much, very much, and as for instance, as John Mosby said, you know, I will be at war forever. When he's reading all of these different comments, um, Marshall is, is making many uh, assertions in newspaper columns that he's writing and speeches that he's giving. Um, on, on both sides of that team, You know, for instance, you also have to appreciate, too, I think, that many of the, the comments that they make are somewhat self-serving, especially in the case of Robertson who is you know, often accused, and even today, of not doing what Stuart expected him to do as far as reporting on Hooker's movements um, and how quickly he may have moved.
0: He, uh, he commanded that piece of the cavalry that stayed with Lee's army. Right. Robinson right. did, yes.
2: Mm-hmm. And then came up later.
0: Right. Then and, you've got uh, the following chapter, after you've described how the 19th century uh, is it, filled with these recriminations. Uh, you and your co-author discuss modern historians who, who weighed in on this from, from Freeman and Doughty and others from sort of the glory days of Lost Cause history. Right. Um, up through Coddington, Longacre, uh, Woodworth, Sears. Uh, it, it's absolutely a, a list, Everybody listening to this show has read at least one book mm-hmm. uh, from one of these guys at some point. And on the side defending Stuart in the modern era, the, the numbers get a lot thinner. Uh, they do. So has has the consensus swung against Stuart and the $64 question, where do you and uh, Eric, your co-author, where do you come out?
2: Well, you know, we certainly had our our own opinions going into this. And I think Eric will admit this as well, that along the way, because we got so deep into the detail of Stuart's ride and exactly what was happening and, you know, what his different options were and looking at his decision-making and all of those comments by the participants, i, I won 't say either one of us really changed our opinion our opinions, but we adapted somewhat. Um, what we really tried to do in the book is to give the reader enough of the detail about the ride and then to see what the participants and what those comment, uh, commentators and historians have to say about it to really come up with their own conclusions but I, we don't make any bones in the book about you know what we feel is important for the, the reader to keep in mind and then also what our take is on those and by that I mean we um, we realize that as you go along and follow along Stuart and his ride he's making certain decisions which are certainly open to interpretation whether you feel they were right or they were wrong but you know the fact remains that once he made that decision it's basically like like knocking over a domino you're going to have that domino effect and then you've got to make many decisions and so forth afterwards um... people have to keep in mind um... i think you know the wear and tear on the horses and everything that's going on with them um, I, so it's really important i think for the reader to to i i've said this often if if you're really interested in the controversy and if you skip ahead to the controversy chapters and read those first i really think you miss a big part of the story because what we say in there really doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless you read the narrative of the ride first. And for, for Eric and I, I mean to get more directly to your question, for Eric and I, I think we have an appreciation for all that's happening during the ride, the decisions that Stuart's making, um, the things that he runs into. Um, so we understand somewhat those decisions, but I think both of us also understand, too, that there are other decisions that he could have made. And perhaps he could have made more of an effort to contact me and to make sure that those those contacts, those couriers, those messages were getting through.
0: But um, as, as the uh, subtitle or as the title of the book says, there is indeed plenty of blame to go around. Right. Uh, no one person. Well, your, your book touches on all kinds of fascinating things. Uh, as I said in the introduction, uh, For Want of a Nail, uh, you have a couple sections where you talk about uh, horseshoes and the 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 importance of the horseshoe and uh, the effect of horseshoeing on cavalry operations, that kind of detail that that does often get overlooked. It's easy to move pieces on the chessboard, but if you have to stop and put new shoes on the the chess piece every hundred miles, it it affects uh, just how you're going to go about that.
2: The logistics is a a very big part of the story, and as you said, that that often gets overlooked. you know, people think that a horse can just take off and you can ride it for a thousand miles, you know, with no repercussions. And back in those days, as we mentioned in the book, you could get anywhere from 50 to 100 miles out of a pair of horseshoes and a horse. And with all of the campaigning, you know, the very r- hard riding and marching, the skirmishing, the battles and so forth, is obviously going to wear down the mounts quicker. Um, and as they're scouring the countryside, the countryside looking for horses, the heavier Pennsylvania draft animal, the one that might be pulling the plow or the wagon, doesn't make a very good cavalry horse so they're not going to be able to just easily interchange their lighter swifter breeds for one of these animals good for pulling wagons and artillery perhaps but not for carrying a cavalry. but
0: uh, a horse is not just a horse uh, right right uh, whether mr. Ed is involved or not the uh, we're we're running short on time I want to quickly point out uh, to our listeners Uh, that uh, our guest, J.D. Petruzzi, also has a fascinating website on Union cavalry in the Civil War, Uh, Buford's Boys, I believe is the name of it. Uh, What's the address of that?
2: Uh, www.bufordsboys.com
0: And uh, you can get all kinds of interesting uh, tidbits there about the Union side of the cavalry ledger. Mm -hmm. Uh, Are you working on anything new in the the cavalry world?
2: We are, yes. In fact, our our publisher of this book, um, Savas Beatty, and and I deal uh, directly quite often with Ted Savas, uh, one of the publishers, has um, expressed an interest in Eric and I doing what we project will be a three-volume history of all the cavalry in the Gettysburg Campaign. So that's, that's what we're working on right now. and In fact, we've started working on that first volume, and we've tried to break it up into something that makes sense, the first volume uh, starting at Brandy Station and then going through about June 26th, uh, ending with the very interesting little skirmish that happens just a few miles west of Gettysburg between John B. Gordon's brigade and Jubo, of Jubo Early's division uh, and some Gettysburg home guard, the 26th Pennsylvania mu- uh, militia, and Elijah White's um, cavalry, the Comanches very interesting little skirmish on the very same ground that John Buford Is going to uh, conduct his delaying defense the morning of July 1st to open
0: the battle Well there are many fascinating cavalry characters We haven't even mentioned the uh, always evocative name of George Custer uh, So there are, there are many others you have to write about there And I think our readers would look forward to, uh, to reading that in the meantime, I will recommend to everyone, uh, you will enjoy Plenty of Blame to Go Around, Jeb Stewart's Controversial Ride to Gettysburg by Eric Wittenberg and our guest today, J. David Petruzzi. J.D., thanks for being with us. Jerry, thank you. I enjoyed it. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.